Welcome back. Uh, we still have Hans Ulrich with us. I'll give him a brief, brief, very brief introduction. Hans Ulrich is the co-director of the Serpentine Gallery where he's curated numerous exhibitions. Uh, recent publications include, oh, rather we don't have them, uh, but many recent publications. <laughs> <laughs> One I should say on Edward Gleeson, a pamphlet with him, we can promote that project. Uh, and there is, uh, and uh, they're all joined by Godfrey Donkor. Godfrey Donkor was born in Kumasi, Ghana, and moved to London in 1973. In 1989, he undertook a BA in Fine Art and Art History at Cent Central St. Martin's College of Art and Design um, in 1995, and his MA in the School of Oriental and African Studies. Um, he later studied uh, postgraduate painting. Um, in Spain in 1991. Uh, Gottfried has held several solo exhibitions uh, since 1995 across Europe, Africa, and the US. He was previously featured in the international exhibition uh, Salamanca in 2003, Venice 2001, and the Tate Modern in 2003 and 2004, um, and Around the World in 80 Days at the ICA in 2006. Welf welcome, Gottfried Donkor and Hans Ulrich. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to uh, continue with this uh, second conversation today with Gottfried. And uh, it's again the first time you know, we do an interview. So I wanted to begin with uh, the beginning as we began with Ottobong, with her beginnings. Uh, and I was kind of curious about how it all started uh, with you and art, if there was a sudden epiphany or a gradual transition or an encounter about how did you come to art or how did art come to you? Yeah, I mean, unlike um, Otto's case, I had to fight to, to go to be an artist. My parents didn't want me to be an artist. And uh, I start, at the age of 14, I was actually wanted to be uh, a fashion designer. So I started to make clothes and um, would design clothes for myself and my friends, would do fashion shows. And when I actually went to decide to go to art school, it was to go to art school to study fashion. It was during my foundation years that uh, one of my tutors said to me, well, try something else for a change and see if you, if you like it, because you've been doing fashion for like six years now, you're still young, you might want to <coughs> experiment with a new medium. So I bought some paints and some brushes and started painting. And halfway through my foundation year, I discovered that I was going to carry on painting, and I applied to do painting. I didn't know much about being a painter, except that I could use colours and um, I liked to, to paint. And so fashion, all of a sudden, I didn't, I didn't apply to do fashion. My portfolio was for painting, and I spent three years um, doing BA in painting. But I still had a love for fashion, so I would still go to the uh, London Fashion Week. A lot of my friends were fashion designers at college. Um, but I wasn't sure how I could actually bridge the two. So for many years, I, I, I started to work as a, as a visual artist. And when you began, who were your, your inspirations? Who were artists? Or, you know, in your case, maybe also fashion designers who, who inspired you? I mean, to begin with, it was definitely the fashion designers and um, people like Catherine Hamlet and uh, Vivian Westwood. Um, I mean, in those days, um, the King's Road was, the, was the, like the catwalk that we would all go down the King's Road on a Saturday and, and dress up just to be seen. And, um, but the, in, in terms of art, the, the, those days, it was, it was also the Basquiat's. And the New York art scene was really influential for us at art school. So we would look at the New York art scene and try to, or wish that we had that in London. And I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, the late Ernest Vancoba and him sort of telling me about this whole, you know, history of uh, South African, you know, modern art. And 
Uh, I was wondering, you know, in terms of, of Ghana, you moved from Ghana to the UK when you were eight years old in 1972. So there's obviously this, you know, background, these beginnings in Ghana. Were there any artists from, from Ghana who, who inspired you? Uh, this, I mean, the, uh, to begin with, I don't think there was because, remember, I wanted to do fashion. So I was really not uh, in, in the art <laughs> world at all. And um, in those days, I think what we, what we now called contemporary African art was not really discussed as such. Not unlike Nigeria, I think, where, where I think is a bigger, bigger scene. But for me, I didn't have any, um, any knowledge of African artists at that time. Um, I went straight from fashion here to, to fine art yeah. here. And like I said, I was looking to New York, actually, um, to see what people were doing there. Because in New York, I can identify with, with, with some of the artists that were working, both from uh, street artists who became gallery artists. And was it maybe, you know, so it wasn't a priori, but was there maybe an a posteriori kind of connection? Did you then later it maybe get interested later. in the history of... It came much later. Yeah. And it came actually in the mid-90s when um, there was this first uh, contemporary African art course at SOAS. And it was the first time, I think, that this contemporary African art, so-called contemporary African art debate uh, started, talking about living artists, artists that um, we, could, we could study and, and get to know, rather than talking about an art form or talking about a group of people that made an art, like uh, uh, sculptures or whatever. So it was, it was not until 95, I think, that I really started to study um, African art history. Yeah. And what inspired you from that? Are there any kind of uh, figures? You know, because I think, again, uh, Eric Hobsbawm talks about the protest against forgetting. He was my, you know, one of my great inspirations when I moved to London in 2006. Mm -hmm. You know, and joined the Southern Bank Gallery. I very often, you know, spoke to Eric Hobsbawm, and he sort of said, you know, we need to protest against forgetting. So I think it's particularly interesting the context here of this, uh, you know, African art fair to, to think about uh, artists also from the African context from the past who might be a toolbox, you know, for artists working now. And Otobom was showing us, you know, images of of her, you know, of her teacher. So I was kind of wondering if there's any artist you could mention whom you think we shouldn't forget. Yeah, no, for me in the early days, I mean, it was interesting. I didn't, I, because I didn't have the knowledge, I wanted to find out who, who was living and working in Africa. So, there were, you know, there was the, the obvious um, Elena Tsui in those days, uh, Abladi Graba from Ghana, artists from South Africa who were, who were now who were being talked about then. Um, but again, it was like the beginning of that discourse. And as an artist, I was, um, I'm sometimes seen as an African artist or a black artist. I was wondering, well, you know, how, how am I going to see myself? So I need to know um, what, what this debate is all about. So studying MA theory, I still had a studio, but I wasn't showing as an artist. So I became an academic for a year. And um, after the year, I think that that's when I became more, more informed. And then there is also in your many parallel realities, in fashion, there is your, of course, main reality, you know, uh, as an artist, but then there is also you as a curator, you, because you initially began as a curator in the early 90s after graduating. Um, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about this and about the shows you curated and if it's something you're still interested in, if you still feel you're also a curator or if that's the past. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I, so when I left art school, I went to Spain and did some training um, and yeah. postgraduate courses there. I worked for artists as an artist assistant for a while just to get to know studio craft and how to how to run a studio and then when I came back to London I was working as a curator um, also because I wanted to know how to install work how to um, present exhibitions how to work with artists to know what artists wanted so that mm -hmm. you can facilitate an artist in terms of my own work that would come into how I wanted my work to be shown so for 
for many years I wasn't actually exhibiting. I worked on projects in the Second Biennale in Johannesburg. I um, did an exhibition called The Elders at the South London Gallery, which consisted of me going to the Caribbean, four Caribbean countries, Barbados, Jamaica, um, um, Trinidad, and Guyana, and working with uh, two uh, Caribbean um, elders, elderly artists in their 80s. So the show was called The Elders. Yeah. And um, the research that I did there um, actually put, put me in, in good stead because they put me in contact with the Caribbean and I started to make some work also in the Caribbean. Um, yeah, so the show came off in South London Gallery in 1999. And after that, I decided that I couldn't do cu curating and be an artist. It was uh, quite a lot. And um, so I decided I would choose one and I decided to, um, to work as an artist from then on. Now, one thing um, we discussed before with uh, Ottobong, which I wanted to ask you as well, is that sort of whole beginning of the catalogue raisonné, because I'm kind of interested in, you know, we talked about your time as a student, we talked about your beginnings, we talked about you in fashion, then as a curator, then the decision to focus on your art practice. Mm -hmm. Where would you say is the moment when your student work, that's it, and you, you start your... You found your language, basically. What would be the first piece where you found I remember exactly where it was. I mean, it was almost 10 years after I graduated, and it was after the 97 Johannesburg Biennale. Um, after that, I... After Oquis Biennale. After the, the yeah. uh, Oquis Biennale. I showed some work to a curator who was working on the Dakar Biennale, and uh, that work got accepted in Dakar. And so that was the first... Um, I, I, I'd done shows in London with groups of friends. We set up warehouse shows, and we, but that was my first international show which, um, which put me you know, on that, that kind of Biennale scene. And can you tell us more about this? Do you have images of that piece? Not here, but no. the, the pieces I showed was, was a series called the Slave to Champ series, which was <laughs> um, one of the first series that I, I started working on from, from a series of collages about um, 18th century and 19th century boxers who were standing on top of slave ships, sections of slave ships. So I painted uh, life-size images of these in black and white mm -hmm. and presented them in Dakar. Now these collages um, is obviously something which then continues and plays a role. I was wondering kind of how, you, how you go about creating these collages, if they are planned or if there is chance involved, and also the notion of the archive. You know, if you start with a kind of a image bank or uh, each time find new sources, how does the the research work in terms of these collages. And I'm very interested in your archive to sort of know a little bit more about how your archive is organized. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a bit of both actually, because the archive is always yeah, there. Sure. I mean, artists always hoard, we're hoarders, aren't we? So we're always collecting material, newspapers, images. I have people sending me images, libraries from books. And the collages would st uh, initially would start from literature that I read, um, and then illustrations and engravings. And I think the reason I started working a lot with 18th century engravings is that there's so many of them. There's so uh, in, in many different um, forms. So I would actually select uh, certain images and, and plan a layout of, of the collage. The collage were like my drawings. So I would select certain mm -hmm. images and plan my layout. I wanted also to have images from different parts of the world that I was interested in. So there would be images from London. Uh, mixed with images from Ghana or something from Africa, mixed with maybe something Caribbean. Now, <clears throat> last week was the Nuit Blanche in Paris and I was asked to do a project there, so I thought it's a nice moment to finally get the ideas of Edouard Glissant, again, you know, more in the broader world, so we printed, you know, 100,000 copies of this little booklet with my interviews with uh, 
Eduard Lisson, with whom I was very close friends and we always spoke. And in some kind of way, when I prepared the interview and I read texts by you and texts on you, I kept thinking of Eduard Lisson because creolization pops up a lot. Um, and uh, I was kind of wondering if, if Grissa is, a, is an influence on you or an inspiration. Well, a little, maybe. The, I mean, the idea of creolization is, is a big influence on me. The idea yeah. that, um, you know, that, like um, language, the, the way that people, people speak in the Caribbean, it's like old English when you hear Caribbean accents. I mean, that's, that's, that's very important to me. So the idea that um, even when I'm in Ghana, I'm thinking of London because I see um, aspects of, of architecture or aspects of the culture that reminds me of London. And then when I'm here, I'm always thinking of Ghana. And when I'm in the Caribbean, I'm, always th I'm thinking almost the two places as well. Because when I went to the Caribbean, I found that it was a mini Europe. It was a mini England, in, especially in the countryside. And then there was a mini uh, kind of Ghana as well, in the, architecturally, the way people are. And I've always been curious about where that, uh, the melt, where that point of mixture is. Whether it's whether it's visible or whether it's like you know um, where where that where that kind of focal point is where where cultures mix. So creolization, I think, took this up. But I was also thinking the sort of whole idea, you know, your book um, I read last night, People of Utopia. There is a connection also maybe to Utopia to this because he talks about Utopia as a kind of a trembling, you know, Utopia. I was kind of wondering because he invented also a novel which is about a sort of an utopic uh, people who, who didn't exist, but an imaginary people. Can you tell us a little bit about this concept of people of utopia, which yeah, is current in the practice? Utopia is a place that doesn't exist. So, uh, you know, it's not real. And that, that really appeals to me, the notion mm. that there's a place that doesn't exist, but we, we sometimes equate utopia with a perfect place, that everything is perfect, you can have what you want, and there's no need for money, there's no, need, there's no strife, there's no illness. But actually, the utopia is, exists maybe in our imaginations. And so for me, my works are trying to create images of utopia. Um, images like this, whether it's combining slavery with, uh, with uh, West African culture or Caribbean culture, from t contemporary culture with uh, 18th century culture, is like mm -hmm. to create a, 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 a space that doesn't exist, but um, that can exist through the artwork. And obviously these people of Utopia, they're kind of saints of some sort, they're particular saints. Can you tell us a little bit more? About they're not your usual saints. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, um, the saints are boxers or they're like yeah. Madonnas, which are dancehall girls or glamour girls. And the idea behind, with the saints also is that, um, the, the, so to, to create that kind of a religious dialogue with the work. I mean, some of my early work was influenced by a lot of religious paintings and iconography. So, I, I use the language of, the, of those early religious uh, pieces with the center f central figure, the halo, the sign of the cross, um, as a way of really just um, just creating a, a language that I can I can work with, both in painting and in collage. Maybe that's a good moment to look at some images because I think you brought a DVD. Yeah, there's a DVD. We, should we watch the DVD first? Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you wanted to go first. I will share with you. This is James Thomas Green. Can you tell us a bit about the genesis of this piece? Yeah, so this DVD was not uh, part of the original um, project for James Thomas Square, but I documented uh, the process. And what happened with uh, the James Thomas Square piece was a, 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 a kind of 18th century photo shoot. So I wanted to do an 18th century photo shoot in Jamestown. 
and I decided to um, design the costumes based on 18th century costumes and uh, European costumes and kind of traditional Ghanaian costumes. But um, once, I, once I started that, I wanted to go, to, I went to Ghana to do some research and find locations to shoot. So Jamestown was the place I ended up, which is the oldest part of Accra. It's where the Danes, the Dutch, and the British first settled, and it has the oldest buildings. And so I was looking for, a, um, I knew the beach would be one scene for this photo shoot. I wanted to find a kind of an urban scene for it too. And, and luckily in the middle of Jamestown, we found that amazing house, which was derelict, and, uh, but squatted by a family. And so we, we also fortunately managed to f find uh, who owned it and get permission to shoot there. So we started the shoot in the morning at, uh, at the house and then we went onto the beach and shot there. Um, I brought the Venetian mask from, from, from Venice actually. Um, and after the, sh the shoot of the morning, the, in the evening we had a performance that we had to give. So during the performance they asked, they had the music and the Winneba Choir and they asked if I, what kind of music I wanted and I, I always liked the idea of classical music. Um, uh, I always had this idea of classical music also being played in the 18th century in somewhere like the Caribbean for a grand house and, um, and the owners of the plantations are having a party and all the servants who are actually essentially slaves are listening to Mozart being played by a live band kind of thing and then having the music in their head as, as they go home really tired, you know, like from working all day and, and the relationship between, for me, when I listen to classical music, um, well, if, I'm, if I'm here, I'm always thinking about how that would trans transform to somewhere like Ghana or to the Caribbean, to Jamaica or to Trinidad. So I asked the, the choir to play something from the 18th century, maybe Handel. Um, and so, the, so this is made for me, my documenta documentation of the whole process. But the artwork was actually the costumes, which I wanted it to be made as, as, a, as more sculptural pieces that, that are worn by people. Um, they're not clothes for, for fashion magazines or for the street, obviously. Um, and um, the pictures that will come from that as well. But it's interesting also because obviously by designing these um, uh, clothes for, for, the, for the performance and for the film, it kind of reconnects to your earlier kind of work with, with fashion. And I read that uh, um, that's also something which became um, important outside your artwork, again, because you designed this football kit for the Ghana team. And it's interesting because the other day I spoke to, to Peter Saville and he obviously famously, you know, did the T-shirts for the English football club, and you famously did the one for the Ghana football club. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Uh, I mean, that's very much art for all, I suppose. Yeah, that what was a bit of charge for call art for all. That was a bit of fun, actually. No, that was um, so last the world, last World Cup in South Africa was the first African World Cup. Yeah. Um, I was in South Africa for a series of shows and exhibitions as part of the FIFA uh, projects, and um, so I had a commissioned exhibition in in, in Joburg. And I got a call from uh, Mark Kutsier, who's, who's then, I think, one of the curators of, um, at Puma. And he said to me, oh, we, we're doing this project on, because um, Puma sponsors around 14 yeah. of the African countries. And would you like to make this shirt for Ghana? I mean, I thought that was a bit of a joke, but um, actually it was quite serious. And so I started working on it in, in, in Joburg and started to um, think, well, how, I mean, how do you make uh, 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 a piece of design for a piece, you know, uh, a kit for the Black Stars. Um, 
So I did some research and went into all the kits that they had from when they were even the Gold Coast team from the 50s. And it was obviously going to be something to do with Black Stars. Um, it was this question of how, um, how they, were, they looked and what kind of... So I, I worked with the Puma team when I got back to London. And we went backwards and forwards for about a year. So it was, uh, but for me, it was a fun project. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, I don't know if it was, it was that much. You know. But was it mass produced? The yes, yeah. it's mass produced. It's in the yeah. shops. So it is out for all. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's in the shop. And, I was, and the, team's, the team still wears it? They still wear it. They wore, in yeah. fact, they wore it on Tuesday when they beat Egypt 6 1. Oh, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so besides the connection, besides the connection to football, um, and I was saying to a friend, I was, that's my yeah. biggest show, because every time they wear it, that's, <laughs> that's brilliant. And uh, obviously also, you know, the connection to football is one thing, but there is also your connection to, to literature. And uh, I'm very interested in that also, because somehow, you know, throughout the 20th century, all the great moments of avant-garde, if you look into surrealism or Dada, or even the new avant-garde of the 60s, like Fluxus, what they all have in common is that very strong you know, connection to literature. And in our time, you know, we always talk about the connection between, uh, between art and music, and uh, you know, art and fashion, and um, art and sports. I mean, there are many, many connections where art, field of art has expanded a lot, but we somehow don't talk that much about the sort of so essential connection to literature anymore. And I found it very interesting reading you know, interviews and texts by you that very often there is a kind of an emphasis on your link to, to literature, and you say that Playwrights or writers such as Beckett or Pinto, yeah. also Pushkin, have inspired you. So I wanted to ask and go a bit deeper with that and ask you to tell us a little bit about this inspiration and how you connect to, to literature. I mean, I think my connection to literature was very, very early on in my school days. I would, I would read um, anything I could get my hands on, um, anything to do with Africa. I mean, there wasn't um, anything to do with Africa, Ghana, whatever, anything to do with the Caribbean. I was curious about the Caribbean for some reason before I went there, almost obsessively, because I would, uh, my, one of my first um, th thoughts about it was literally, I mean, how, how um, African people got to go to the Caribbean, obviously, the history of slavery. Um, I was also um, really into historical literature as well as fiction. Um, they were kind of like, they would create, when I read a book, it would create images that I can, if, that I can make work from, literally. So it was a source of, of material for my image making. Um, Pushkin, for me, you know, is one of those, is great po um, poet and a great writer. And if I, when I read Pushkin, I was, I was able to kind of concentrate on, you know, my process of image making as, as well. Do you see what I'm saying? So, yeah. And have you ever collaborated with, with writers or? I did a project actually in in, um, in Krakow in 2011, yeah. where I collaborated with Echo Eshon. Yeah. So he wrote a text. Um, it was a show called Alias, and where they had um, artists collab um, paired up with writers. So Echo wrote a text, and I made an image for that text. It was called uh, New Lagos. Yeah, and the connection to books and uh, you know it's, uh, also leads us to the connection to to newspapers because one of the things which is very present in your work is, is the, uh, I mean, we spoke before with uh, uh, Otto Wong about the handwriting. In your work, it's more the printed page which appears. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of newspaper you use for your collages, if it's the guns and bullets, or if it's the flags, the Financial Times flags. You, also did a, you did an artist book 
-hmm. with the FT kind of imagery. Mm -hmm. How how do you connect to to newspapers? Is that some sort of a form of archive connection or? It started off. I, I do collect a lot, yeah, because like hoarding newspapers was the beginning. And so like Gustav Metzger, you're hoarding newspapers. Yes, I do. Yeah, I've got a studio full of them. And um, but the Financial Times stu stood out because it's the only newspaper here that has color. And so sure. for me, it was like um, I wanted to use that as a base for my collages because it gave a bit of color to my collages. That um, all my most of my collages are black and white with maybe a gold halo. So the FD gave me the color that I wanted. And then later on, I was, I was using the kind of the business pages of the FT with the stocks and shares, which was, uh, you know, also kind of, uh, that came slightly later. But initially, it was the color of it. Um, newspapers are just a record of, of, of what, you know, our daily lives. So um, I have newspapers from when I go to Ghana. I get newspapers from when I'm in Senegal, when I'm in the States, wherever I travel. They keep them always? I, I buy a few. I don't buy loads. I buy because they're quite heavy. So I buy at least six or seven and uh, bring them back. I buy some tabloids and I buy some broadsheets. And yeah, I have stacks of them in the studio. Wonderful. Now I've got many, many more questions, but we are soon running out of time. So this is also part one of something to be continued. Are there more images you want to yeah, show us? Yeah. There's a few more from the James Thomas Square project. <coughs> So we started off at the house, and uh, oh, it has to go back like that. And these are some of the houses that there are still in, Je in, in, in Jamestown. Unfortunately, the first house we found um, got demolished shortly after the project, yeah. and uh, no longer exists. Just you could just go through them. And when um, when when we were actually shooting the work and. And the actors were in situ, you know, with masks and full costume. I realized also that the relationship between them and the space um, was something that I didn't account for. I thought this was going to be a straightforward, uh, kind of a, a different, straight, straightforward uh, uh, fashion shoot with, with a bit of a difference. But actually, the drama came in, and the, uh, the, the ideas about dream, ideas about going back in the past, ideas just because of the, the, the I love the background and the texture of the buildings that, and how they react to the fabric and the costumes. And then when we finally went on to the beach, it was the, you know, the, the beach in Ghana, I spend a lot of time whenever I'm there, I spend a lot of time on the beach. It's for me, my, uh, my vista there is looking always to the Caribbean and to the West and to, the, and to Louisiana and Southern American states. So it's for me, it's like, I wanted the actors to look from the beach to the West, almost as if they came from there. with the fishermen still working, pulling in their boats because they've just been out that morning. And this is how Jamestown is even today. It's a shame this couldn't be a slideshow, but that's fine, actually. One thing I was wondering before, you know, looking at you know, your films and also the collages, I was kind of wondering if the if digital technology changed anything, if the internet changed the way you work. When we talk about newspapers, um, you know, which you use physically. If, is there something which um, has changed? Because I visit, you know, visit your website, and your website is, is quite minimal. <laughs> it's very minimal. It's, uh, it very came basic. to my mind because you mentioned the slideshow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because this is a, 
is a sort of a slideshow, yeah. but your website is another sort of a slideshow of images, and there's an email address, so one can contact yeah, you. Um, so I was wondering if that's a decision to kind of purposely remain elusive, and, and, and if, if still there is some kind of, because obviously collage, the 20th century, is kind of referred as the collage century, and now we're in the digital age, mm. and, and, uh, um, and it's a new form of collage. So, 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 yeah. I mean, it's a long question, but it's really, has the internet changed the way you work? Yeah, no, I think the new digital age and internet imagery is like, is, 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 is collaging because people are actually making images, HD images. I mean, um, it's a form of collaging. Um, and I prefer the, the old, the old uh, way of collaging, which is cutting and pasting. But I, actually, the new way gives me ideas into how to, to, to finalize my images. So I could use uh, images from different uh, generations, from different times. But yeah, I see that a lot of the images today is, is, is collage, whether it's digital or not. Now, last but not least, the only recurrent question, actually two last questions. The only recurrent question is the question about the unrealized projects. We asked Ottobahn, projects have been too big to be realized, too small to be realized, sensor projects, self-sensor projects, maybe forgotten projects in your locker. Mine was, yeah, I always had the project which is far too big to be realized. I wanted to build a ship wow. which would go from Africa to the Caribbean and from the Caribbean to, to England, and then again from England back to Africa. But each time, and some, I think part of the idea has been done already by our friend with the double club, where you had a, uh, you know, you had a, a, night, a nightclub in London, which yeah, is part, yeah. But the idea was that when the ship went from Africa, there would be a different activity when yeah. it came from, but no, it was, it was far too big, but it's still a dream. So another lovely connection to Eduard Glissant, you know, who always drew <laughs> this ship which would connect. Uh, the Caribbean yeah. to all other geographies. Uh, and that leads to the very, very last question. You know, Rainer Maria Rilke um, wrote this lovely little book, which is an advice to a young poet. I was kind of wondering, because obviously many, you know, young artists also here in, in the audience and, and students, so I was wondering what would be in 2013 your advice to a young artist? To enjoy their process, research, and, you know, it, I think they are, you know, art should be enjoyed, you know, so. Do a lot of research and enjoy your process. Great, Godfrey. Thank you very, very much. Thank you all. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Urgent questions. <laughs> I'm very happy to hear from Koyo that even if I'm told we're running out of time, we still do have time for questions. So that is great news. Urgent question. <laughs> there must be one question, no? No, everything is explained. Everything is explained. So is there another coffee break to the next talk? So coffee break, coffee break. Thank you all.